Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting at verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. One of the things that we should thank God for regularly is the political stability that we have in this country. I mean, it's one of those things that we truly do take for granted. We had a general election just a few months ago, and there's a whole bunch of things that we just take for granted because it's the norm in this country. No one was shot, no one was arrested, uh, the army weren't involved in any way in the election process. You were in no danger if you expressed your political views, irrespective of how stupid they might have been. Uh, there were ballot papers lost in Western Australia, correct, but there's not even the slightest suggestion that anything illegal or unethical happened there. It was just a clumsy mistake. See, most people in our world don't enjoy that kind of freedom. Uh, some years ago, I worked with a Hungarian lady who was a young girl in Hungary in 1956 when the Russian invasion took place. Hungary had been under Russian control since the mid-1940s, but in 1956 the Hungarian government were worried about a potential protest in the country against the communist government, and they asked the Russian army to come in and take control of the country. This lady that I worked with said it was the most terrifying time for her and her whole family. Thousands of soldiers and tanks rolled through the streets. People disappeared. They were arrested and imprisoned. Hundreds of people were executed. Thousands more were deported to Russia to try and maintain stability in the country. The great hope for the Hungarian people for so many years was that one day they would be free again, that they would have their own government controlling what happened in their country. They would have self-government and control of their own destiny. Well, as I said before, Christmas is only just a month away now, and over these next few weeks we're going to look at the promises that God has made in the Old Testament concerning this one that he was going to send. Promises that are fulfilled on that very first Christmas. Promises about a Messiah, promises about sending Jesus. 
And this morning we're going to look at the promise of a king. Now the idea of a king may not seem terribly important to us, but it would have been incredibly important to the people of Jesus' day. It would have spelt freedom for them. The people of Jesus' day would have longed to have their own king sitting on the throne. They haven't had their own king on the throne since since they were overtaken in 587 BC. So for 600 years, they've been under the control of foreign governments, clinging to this promise that God would one day put a king on their throne who would rule. In that time, they've been under four different foreign powers, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and at the time of Jesus, they're under the control of the Romans. For the people of Israel, having a king wasn't just a question of politics and government, went far deeper than that. It was about having the freedom to live as God's people. It was about having God's king ruling over them. It was about living freely in the land that God had given them. They longed for the day that God would establish that kingdom. They longed for the day when they would see God's king. And it wasn't just wishful thinking. They knew that God had promised this and they knew that God would act. Now, before we look at the promises that God makes about kingship, it's important to understand how kingship was supposed to operate in Israel. See, when we think of kingship today, we tend to think of large palaces and expensive crowns, lavish functions, royalty who are really superior to other people. When we think of royalty, we think of a symbolic role. We don't think of people with any genuine power or possibility of doing anything. But kingship in Israel was supposed to be totally different to that completely different to that. That was the kind of kingship that was around all the way through the pages of the Old Testament. The Babylonian emperors, the Babylonian kings, the Persian kings, the Greek kings, they were people who lived in lavish palaces, who showed off their wealth, who who showed just how powerful they were. But that wasn't what God's king was to be like. That was why we read that passage from Deuteronomy before. Uh, This is what God says. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get them. Egyptian horses are kind of like Italian sports cars, you know. They were the really good ones that you'd want to get your hands on. So they weren't to go to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. The king wasn't to set an example of opulence and wealth and power. He wasn't to set an example of aloofness. He wasn't to be totally different to the people. In fact, he was to be an example. This is what it goes on to say in Deuteronomy. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the Lord to the right or to the left. He and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The king was to be a role model for the people. He was to be one from among the people. 
He was to be the example of how to live a godly life. How to live as one of God's people. But sadly, kingship in Israel just didn't seem to work that way. Even the best of the kings managed to mess things up really badly. King David gets off to a great start. That is, of course, until he commits adultery and then attempts to cover it up by arranging for the husband of that woman to be put to death. King Solomon also gets off to a wonderful start. He's the the king who says to God, give me wisdom to lead these people the way that you want me to. But then he does exactly the things that God said, don't do these things, back in Deuteronomy 17. Starts acquiring wealth. Starts acquiring wives. Sends back to Egypt to get horses, if you can believe it. Kingship in Israel after Solomon pretty much went downhill from there. And the failure of kingship leads to the failure of the nation. The kingdom ends up being divided after Solomon, because of Solomon, divided to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Eventually they're expelled from the land. And why are they expelled from the land? Because of the failure of their kings. That's what the Bible says. And you're left, when people are sent off into exile, wishing that there'd be a better king. One who could actually get it right. One who could be a good king from beginning to end. Someone who will do what God wants them to do. A king who lives among the people, but is an example of obedience and faithfulness to God. Way back when King David was king, when he'd just taken the throne before things had gone badly wrong, God made a promise to David. At the time, the kingdom had kind of been well established and and David was on the throne and living in a palace at that time. But the tabernacle, the place that God symbolically dwelt, well, it was still just a tent. That was what they'd used in all those 40 years wandering in the desert. So it was still just a tent and David wanted to build a temple for God. He wanted to build a house for God to live in. But God talks to David and says this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish a throne for his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Quite emphatic, isn't it? God promises this eternal kingdom In David's line. God promises a king, a seed, one from David's own family who will sit on that throne forever. And God's not in the habit of reneging on his promises. Even when kingship fails in Israel, people are still clinging to this hope of a godly king. Even when the kingdom is overrun by the Babylonians and they're dragged off into captivity in Babylon, they're still clinging to this hope. And God keeps reaffirming the promises. The prophets keep saying, 
God's going to put a king on the throne. Here's what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now, I'm guessing that there's some people here who are going to be able to cast their minds back to 1972. I'm mindful of the fact that there are people in the room here who weren't even born in 1972. But there was a very famous election campaign that took place in 1972. They had a really clever slogan for the Labor Party. And I bet everyone who was around at that time is going to be be able to remember what it was. Two words. It's time. That's what the Labor Party was saying. It's time, it's time for a change, it's time for Gough to take power. But the campaign slogan was used before that. Uh, Right at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus uses those, not exactly those words, but close enough to it. This is what it says. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has Come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, it's time. And what he means is, it's time for the kingdom to come. It's time for God's king to take the throne. The thing that God's people had been hoping for, that God would send a king, that God would establish his kingdom, well, it's going to happen now. Jesus says, it's time. New Testament writers are in no doubt about this. They see that God's promises are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. All the language surrounding the birth of Jesus in Matthew and Luke points to the fact that Jesus is the king who is in David's line. What does God say to the shepherds? Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And when the wise men come, who do they say that they're looking for? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. It's time. Jesus has come as the promised king. And he's come to establish God's kingdom. So how's he going to do that? Does he gather a great army together? Is there a call to war? Does it involve overthrowing a government? No, the kingdom is established in a most remarkable way. It's established with a message. The kingdom is established by telling people the good news and calling them to believe it. To turn around from how they're living and to trust Jesus as their king. Have a look at what it says in that passage in Mark. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is established by calling people to make Jesus their king. That's what repenting means. 
It means you've been heading the wrong way in your life and you've failed to acknowledge Jesus as king. So you stop and you turn around and you say, Jesus is my king. And Jesus told his disciples that that's the way the kingdom would be established. He said they were to proclaim the good news. They were to tell people who Jesus was, tell people what Jesus had done. And they were to call on them to make Jesus their king. It's not a kingdom that's established by wealth or power, though sadly some within the kingdom have been distracted by wealth and power. It's not a kingdom established by war and bloodshed, but it is a kingdom that's established entirely on the death of one man. The kingdom grows as the good news about the kingdom is preached. And you can't deny that Jesus has established a truly remarkable kingdom in this world. And I've mentioned this before, but when Napoleon was being held prisoner on the island of St Helena, he spent time thinking about Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus had established and how it was that Jesus had established it. Uh, Here's another quote from Napoleon where he's reflecting on this kingdom that Jesus has established. I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I and I myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar and Alexander should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hand across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. It truly is extraordinary, isn't it? And all that through telling people a message that Jesus is king. Well, Christmas is now one month and one day away. And in the next month, we're going to sing a whole lot of carols, Christmas carols that talk about Jesus being king. Carols like Angels We Have Heard on High or Joy to the World, Let the Earth Receive Her King. Christians Awake, Come All Ye Faithful, Mary's Boy Child, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, O Holy Night. And the list could go on and on. You'll hear them playing in shopping centres. You'll hear them sung in carols at the domain. All these carols talk about Jesus being king. We meet here today because we acknowledge that Jesus is king. We are people who believe that good news, who recognise that Jesus must be the king of our lives. And the kingdom is still growing today and still growing exactly the same way that it's always grown, as that good news about Jesus is proclaimed. One of the great things about Christmas is that it's one of the very few times in the year where you seem to have permission to be able to talk about Jesus. Over the next few weeks, you'll hear radio shows or TV shows or read newspaper or magazine articles that will talk about what the meaning of Christmas is what Christmas is all about, what the Christmas spirit really is. You'll hear some weird and wonderful ideas on the radio and the television and in those magazines. So what you need to do is you need to be ready. You need to be ready to talk about what Christmas 
really means. Be ready to tell people about Jesus being king. Be ready to share the message that he's still changing the world today. And we need to do it, as Peter said, with gentleness and respect. But like Peter said, we need to be ready to tell people about the hope that we have. Why Jesus is our king. 